Welcome. I'm Kevin Scott, one of the story architects of Star Wars The High Republic. This is Dominic Pace, who plays Gekko the Bounty Hunter from The Mandalorian. Hi, I'm Claudia Gray. I write Star Wars books. And you're listening. And you are listening to Star Wars Comics and Canon. The Force is strong with this one. Hello there and welcome to Star Wars Comics in Canon, your guide to the wider Star Wars canon through the comic book lens. And to take you on this journey, I'm your host, Mike Burton. And so brings episode 105. So my friends, this week I am tackling the five-part miniseries called Halcyon Legacy. Now it was released as a sort of promo thing for the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser experience. It's something at Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland and Disney World, which costs quite a lot of money to be involved with, but it's a two or three day experience. You stay in a hotel and everything is fully interactive and things that you do along the way impact like the story. Uh, there's loads of cool things that's all like Star Wars canon food, there's the First Order on board and the Resistance and it's all like a, a big plot to it and things. Not dissimilar to how Galaxy's Edge is, but even more immersive. Sounds like a very, very cool concept, but as I said, it is quite expensive. I'll let yourselves go and look it up and see uh, how much it will put you back uh, to spend two or three days on the Galactic Star Cruiser. But obviously I like tackling all the comics in the canon where I can. And uh, this mini series was something that was fairly interesting to me. I, anthology series are something that I'm not overly fussed on usually, but when it's certain eras that are unexplored or characters we don't get to see that much get a bit more time then I'm normally quite happy with it or when it's a bit different like the uh, Tales to Vader's Castle comics but before I delve into the information regarding the personnel the release and then etc etc with this I just want to say if anyone is listening for the first time I'm going to explain that I go through each of the comics in order I give you some general plot details so there will be some spoilers but then you still get a good gist of what's going on in the plot and along the way when certain things pop up I will make references to them so when certain species or reoccurring characters or just interesting tidbits or trivia pops up, I will give you some information along the way. So it's a great way to expand your canon knowledge. You can still pick up these comics and still get something out of them because I don't tell everything that's in there. But the main strokes of the plot I do talk about. So if you don't pick up these comics, you still have a good understanding of the wider canon. And along the way, you learn a little bit more. So with that in mind, let's get into things. So Halcyon Legacy. Issue number one was released February 2nd, 2022. Issue five was released August 3rd, 2022, and the trade paperback collection is due to be released November 1st, 2022. The writer is Ethan Sachs, the artist is Will Sliney, and the colour artist is Rachel Rosenberg. Now, Ethan Sachs is an individual who's been writing the Bounty Hunters run that's been going on, which has been involved with my main Bounty Hunters episodes where I go through those plots, but also the War of the Bounty Hunters crossovers episodes, as well as the Crimson Rain crossover episodes. So if you've been keeping up to date with any Bounty Hunters content, either via myself or elsewhere, then uh, you can have a nice little surprise at some point in this. When we get to it, I'll let you know. But uh, you can tell Ethan Sachs writes this because of certain characters and th certain things that pop up uh, in relation to the Bounty Hunters. Hunters run. 
And much like other anthology comics I have tackled, there are two running storylines. So there's the main story, or frame story, as some people call it, which is the story that's going on through these five comics. And then normally a character has some sort of exchange with another character, and they go, well, let me tell you a story about that. And then the story is obviously a flashback. And that's the kind of main point of the issue, while there's still central themes going along with the main plot. So I want to clarify that because the main slash frame plot is taking place around 35 years after the Battle of Yavin. So it's around the sequel trilogy era it's set after the force awakens and the last jedi and set before the rise of skywalker how do we know because the first order is still about and the resistance are actively fighting them quite a lot and there's certain things that are referenced uh, which are clearly happened in either the force awakens or the last jedi so it's in that year gap because obviously the force awakens to last jedi it was maybe a few hours maybe a day or two i'm fairly certain it was only a few hours between those uh, i'm primarily thinking about the rebels and stuff obviously where ray ends in the force awakens is exactly where she starts in uh, last jedi but the rise of skywalker takes place around a year after the last jedi so the whole sequel trilogy takes place in about a week and a year uh, where compared to the prequel trilogy which took place over about 13 years and and the original trilogy, which took place around four years, it is quite a short span of time. But aside from that, when I get to each of these issues, I'm going to say where the flashback generally takes place. So with that in mind, we move on to the first issue. Now, the first issue, the flashback takes place around 230 years before the Battle of Yavin. So any fans of High Republic will know that is when phase one of the High Republic is set. And you'll know that because when we delve into things, uh, Buryaga makes an appearance. He's even on the cover of issue number one. And Buryaga is a Wookiee Jedi Padawan. And he is one of the main characters of the three adult novels of the High Republic, Light of the Jedi, The Rising Storm, and The Fallen Star, all of which I've released spoiler-free book reviews on this very feed or on the YouTube channel, depending on where you're listening and as well as being spoiler free book reviews what i do is the first part of the review i give a completely spoiler free opinion on things then i give a slightly more spoilery opinion on things and then towards the end i give yourselves the general plot and overview of the books so if you're interested by them but don't want them spoiled you can check out those episodes whereas if you aren't necessarily able to read all the high republic content or you want just a vague understanding of what it's all about check out those book reviews because it will give you a good understanding on themes characters and also the plot but with that in mind let's get into things so issue number one obviously starting around 35 years after the battle of yavin so the sequel trilogy era and it starts off with a Thalothian girl called semina and her grandfather called shaw comrin now, Thalothians you should recognise because they're in the Clone Wars a fair amount. There's Adi Gallia, who's a Thalothian, as well as, in the High Republic, in fact, there's the character Ty Yorick, who's one of my favourite characters, the Sabre for Hire, who's also the central character in the Monster of Temple Peak miniseries. So Thalothians, they are humanoids, and they have head tendrils or tentacles, and the head tentacles are normally sort of white or a very light colour, and... Aside from that, they're, they're fairly human-like, aside from those elements. But yeah, you see them in the prequel trilogy, and you see them in the uh, sequel trilogy as well. But Adi Gallia is one of the most famous ones. If you've seen the Clone Wars series, there's a fairly gruesome death uh, where Darth Maul and Savage Press kill as Thalothian. Um, but yeah, so these two are Thalothians, and they are greeted by a droid, because as they enter the Halcyon Legacy, which is a massive in-Star Wars canon, it's basically a big cruise ship. But obviously, they're in space, so it's a space cruise ship, and it's a really, really nice uh, cruise ship as well much like i'm sure the galactic star cruiser is in real life wouldn't it be nice if i was sponsored by disney could you imagine that'd be a lot of fun wouldn't it but um as they get onto this ship they are greeted by a droid called d309 
Now you can actually see D309 in real life when you go to Galaxy's Edge. And if you go to the Galactic Star Cruiser, you should be greeted by D3. And also D3 is in the recently released book by Beth Revis, The Princess and the Scoundrel, which was only released, I think, yeah, in the last week or two. And it's about Han Solo and Leia's honeymoon. And they go to the Halcyon Legacy during their honeymoon at some point. I haven't read the book. Probably not going to prioritize it because I've got a lot of big books to read coming up, uh, including obviously I just finished Shadow of the Sith. I'm currently now listening to the Darth Bane third book in the trilogy which is Legends and also I'm reading Midnight Horizon by Daniel Jose Older and then we got all the High Republic stuff coming out in another month or two so lots of reading so Princess and the Scoundrel is not one that has been prioritized for me but from the reviews I've heard online and things like that people are seeming to really really enjoy it so if you want to hear about Han and Leia's honeymoon and their wedding and all that sort of stuff go check out the Princess and the Scoundrel so D3 wants to take Shaw and Samina around the Halicyon as talking to them about the many things that the Halicyon has to offer. And then D3 mentions that Shaw had been on the Halicyon prior. Then you get a small flashback of like a page and you see that young Shaw is seeing Anakin and Asajj Ventress lightsaber dueling. Padme is also there to kind of reassure him and then it flashes back to now. As they're looking around the Halicyon, Shaw sees some scratches on the wall and then hears an alarm sound. Then it cuts to a female Pantoran called Ryola Keevan. She's the captain of the ship and receives a communication from some pirates who are looking for a resistance spy because they can see that a transmission was sent from the Halicyon. Now, a Pantoran is, once again, a humanoid-like being, but they have blue skin. Now, you can see them in the Clone Wars. You can actually see them in Attack of the Clones and I think Revenge of the Sith. In one of those two, you actually see George Lucas as a character in the Star Wars universe and he's got blue skin and he's playing a Pantoran and then the character that he plays is actually in the Clone Wars animated series not voiced by him it's voiced by someone else but they're very similar to the Chiss obviously the Chiss are famed because of Thrawn Grand Admiral Thrawn so the Chiss and Pantorans are very similar it's just Chiss have red eyes Pantorans don't they generally have a variety of different eye colors and the Pantorans are based on Pantora which is in the known regions of the galaxy whereas the Chiss come from their own system in the unknown regions so Chiss are very uncommon in the Star Wars galaxy. And the character that George Lucas plays in live action is Baron Not Lewiski Papanoida. So Chairman of the Moon Pantora, Baron obviously being his role and that's the one that George Lucas played and then in the Clone Wars you get to see him in the episode Sphere of Influence and Sphere of Influence is season 3 episode 4 of the Clone Wars. So people start to panic in the story about this alarm going off and being attacked by pirates. So D309 recounts a story 265 years ago when the Helysium was only 10 years old. So we go to our first flashback. So we're in the first phase of the High Republic and you've got Buryaga and Nibisek. Buryaga being the Wookiee Padawan and Nibisek being his human master. Now Nibisek is really interesting. You get introduced to her in the Light of the Jedi, but she basically learnt Shriwook, which obviously is the language of many Wookiees. It's not the only language of the Wookiees, but it's like the main one. It's the one that uh, Chewbacca speaks as well. But Nibisek specifically learnt Shriwook just so she could communicate with Buryaga better. He's sort of a teenage Wookiee. His age is not confirmed, but obviously Wookiees seem to live to like around 300-ish years old or if not more so if he's a teenager I imagine he's actually probably about 40 or 50 years old um, because obviously they're approximately three times older than humans and Buryaga's full name is Buryaga Agaburi which obviously is not quite a palindrome but sort of similar so Nib and Buri are meditating and then Buri thinks about the Great Disaster, which is the event of Light of the Jedi. So at this point it's set between Light of the Jedi and the Rising Storm. Now Nib does manage to calm him down and then they are called into the bridge to speak with the captain of the ship at that time. 
They say that there's some strange readings that ships seem to have just randomly appeared out of nowhere on the other side of a planet, and they're really confused how that was, and Nib says for certainty that it was the Nile. So the Nile prepared to attack with Zeta at the helm. Now Zeta is a Talpini. Now Talpini is a creature that I think has only been in the canon for a short period of time. They were introduced in Rogue One. It was one of the many characters that Warwick Davis has played. And when there's the sort of shootout in Jeddah, you see this very small creature with a giant mouth shooting over cover and things. That's a Talpini. But this Talpini in question from the Nile, he actually has a power suit. Because obviously, if it's like a half a meter tall being, usually it's not going to be much of a threat to most people in hand-to-hand combat. So he's got this big power suit. It's kind of like if you've played Bioshock, it's almost like a big daddy suit in a way. It's just this big bionic metal suit. So as the Nile are preparing to attack, they shoot the Halesion Legacy's thrusters, which means they can't jump to hyperspace, and then they jam their comms as well. Nib notes that the Nile must want something aboard, otherwise they would have just destroyed the ship. So Nib and Biriaga send a message through the Force to Starlight Beacon asking for help. They're unsure if it's gone through or not, but they tried really hard and there's not really any other options. The Nile then breached the ship and managed to get on board. Nib says that she will confront the Nile and asks Buryaga to try and get in his ship, in a vector specifically, and keep the rest of the fighters off the Halysion. So some really cool action panels here, which I'm not going to delve into hugely because obviously I want you guys to pick up these comics, but Nib is fighting the Nile in a corridor and then approaches Zetar. While this is happening, some crew aboard the bridge decide to mobilise a defence force and as they leave the room, Aethis Passion uses the vents to get to the bridge. Now, Thispassion is a sort of reptilian four-armed being that's got like a hairy torso and also often hairy faces and long beards, and they have very long tails as well. Now, it may not sound familiar because it's something that's kind of had a resurgence, uh, I know around the High Republic era especially, but there's a character called Oporancissus who is over, you know, 250, maybe even 300 years old, and you see him both in the High Republic era, but also in the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones on the Jedi Council. Now, he was planned to be in the Clone Wars episodes, like a few of them, but he ended up just not appearing. And then there's been some rumors that he survived Order 66 and things like that. But we've not really seen him anywhere else. There's the 2017 Darth Vader comic by Charles Saul. And in that, I'm fairly certain I remember there's a bit where the Grand Inquisitor has got a list of Jedi that survived. You've got like Quinlan Vos, Yoda, and Jocastanu and Obi-Wan in there. Jocastanu is someone that the Grand Inquisitor tries to hunt then in that kind of volume but Operancissus, I seem to recall, is on that list. So I think Operancissus may have actually survived Order 66, and maybe he'll pop up somewhere else. But he is a Thispassian, although you can barely see him in the, the movies. And if you actually look at a picture of him, it doesn't look like how I've just described. But uh, this comic, you get to see what they look like. So anyway, this Nile, after using the vents to get to the bridge, it shows that the defense force get to where Nibasek is fighting the Zeta in the power suit and assist her in pushing him back. Jedi reinforcements then appear, including Stellan Geos in their vectors, and while all this is going on, that Thispiasian is in the bridge, manages to get some codes for this Chandrilla shipping yard, and sends it over to the Nile, and then once received, Zetar presses a couple of buttons, and a bracelet that Thispiasian is actually wearing then glows and then fully electrocutes him and just kills him on the spot. Zeta does manage to escape by destroying a window and then using his power suit to escape out of there. Nib then has to use the force to try and rescue these people from flying out just to make sure everyone is okay, and the breach is then closed. All of the passengers aboard the ship have been completely fine and no one was seemingly harmed by the Nile either, and although they won the day, they are a little bit confused how a Nile got into the bridge and then suddenly died, but they just assume maybe it was the defense force or something like that. But everyone is happy that all of the passengers are okay. 
So then it cuts back to present day and it shows that the pirates start to open fire on the Halician legacy. And that is where issue number one ends. So we get on to issue number two. So issue number two starts with the pirate Crimson Jack, who is the leader of that pirate crew, sending a warning shot to the Halician legacy. It doesn't hit, but obviously it freaks them out. He then sends comms to them and demands to board, and so Captain Keevan agrees and says they can board the ship to try and find this resistance spy. Now, someone called Lenka Mock is there with Keevan, and she is the crew's director. She questions Keevan's motives and what she's doing, and Keevan doesn't really answer her question, and then speaks to her crew and says, look, we need to prepare to fly into that nearby solar storm. Now, while this is happening, D309 says that Helician Legacy actually flew into a storm previously, and mentions Aura Singh. Now, we'll quickly say here that D309 is a droid, but they do have feminine characteristic programming, so I will refer to them as a she occasionally, just in case anyone gets confused about that. So whenever D309 is recounting a story, she's always recounting it to Samina and Shaw. And I mentioned Aura Singh, who is the main focal point of this flashback I'm about to delve into. But Aura Singh is someone who you would recognise even if you've never seen anything outside the films, but you may not actually know you recognise her. So she is seen in The Phantom Menace at the Bunta Eve pod race, so the pod racing in The Phantom Menace. She's actually watching, she sees it, I think near enough where one of the big jumps is, uh, about halfway through it. And she is a paladuvan. So she is very, very pale skinned and they have like this antenna thing coming out of the top of their head. And Aurasing in particular is a bounty hunter. You see her in the Clone Wars quite a lot. She actually used to be force sensitive and was part of the Jedi Order and then left, which I didn't know about until researching for her today. But she's in the Clone Wars animated series a fair amount. She does a lot of episodes of Boba Fett and Bosk. And there's a couple with the Sarge Ventress as well, which are quite cool. And she is associated with Cad Bane. She also dated Hondo Onaka for a bit. And she has a biocomputer cybernetics implant of some degree. She was actually killed by Tobias Beckett as well, which is Woody Harrison's character in Solo A Star Wars Story. So Solo's like mentor sort of in that film. And Tobias killed her, I think, by pushing her off a cliff or something like that. And so she lived around the Clone Wars and the prequel era. And then at some point when the Empire reigned, she was killed. So let's get into this flashback. So some guy hires Aura Singh as protection because he has a lot of debts to the huts, mainly from gambling and things. And he says he just has one more job to do and he can pay them back. But if she can protect him while he sorts this, everything will be fine. While this is happening, he does show to have a child, a young boy. And he's quite mean to the kid and quite dismissive. and like yelling in the kid's face, telling him to go away when he's like interrupting the conversation and stuff, which seemingly bothers Aura a little bit, but you can't fully tell. And then Aura receives a communication and it is from Zam Wessel who is speaking to her through a earpiece of some sort. Now Zam Wessel is a Claudite. A Claudite is someone who is a shapeshifter. They actually, Claudite was a main character or like a supporting character for a volume or two of the 2015 run of Star Wars comics written by Jason Aaron, I think it was. It was around the time they have to go to like this Mon Calamari opera thing and the Claudite gets involved. But Zam Wessel, you'd have seen in Attack of the Clones, she's the first bounty hunter who tries to kill Padme. She's the one who orchestrates putting those millipede things into Padme's room. And then Anakin and Obi-Wan manage to pursue her. They do the whole race through the streets of Coruscant and they manage to catch up to her. And then Jango Fett shoots her with a poison dart and it kills her, reverting her back to how she did look as a Claudite. And I want to note here those millipede things or multi-legged arthropods are actually called Kuhans. But anyway, Zam is on comms to Aura Singh and says that trouble is heading to her. Then a weak way approaches Aura Singh and says that he has the guy's kid, so they need to go and follow him. So they follow him to a shuttle and then 
heads to a planet Numidian Prime. Now, Numidian Prime is actually in Solo, A Star Wars Story. Again, it's right at the very end, and it is the planet that Han won the Falcon off of Lando at. When they're doing a Sabacc game, that's where it happens right at the end there, so fun little thing there. But anyway, the shuttle lands planet side, and Aura took D309 with her, just grabbed her and basically forced her into the shuttle along, and D3 warns that there is a solar storm happening in 10 minutes, and the Helysion is going to leave them there. So Aura walks with this weak way and then there's a few more weak ways and stuff and it shows there's some sort of game going on but they're all being quite vague about it and things. And then a creature called a Predivorex attacks. So this Predivorex I describe almost like a Minotaur kind of thing, almost like a werewolf mixed with a Minotaur. It doesn't really seem to be anywhere else in canon but it's a pretty cool creature. Aura has a tussle with it, you know, she fights it and they're kind of trying to avoid it. She's a very skillful tactician when it comes to hand-to-hand fighting. And while that's happening, the huts are watching on like a cam and are betting on it, on who's going to win between Aura and this Predivorex. Eventually, Aurasing does best this creature and the hut are mad about it. The Weequays then head down to her on the sort of floor of this jungly place and say that she messed up their betting line. They then go to attack her, but then they're actually there's one extra weak way that wasn't there a minute ago, and it turns out that Zam Wessel pretending to be a weak way because obviously Claudites are shapeshifters, and then Zam and Aura manage to fight and shoot their way out of that situation. They manage to get the kid away from those weak ways and return to the Helysian legacy safely. Now I just want to read out a little bit of dialogue from D3. Part of it is during the flashback, and then part of it is after the flashback, and I just think it's really really good writing, so I'm just going to read it out to you. So Aura gets the kid back to his dad and things and everything seems happy and whatnot. And then D3 offers Zam and Aura some drinks and also some credits to cover the costs and things. And D3 says, compliments of the captain. He is grateful that you both saved that young passenger and that you did not take out any other passengers. Though I'm obliged to warn you that the Huts have just purchased the Helysion, so they are now technically your bosses. And then cuts back to now in the present day. And Aura Singh and Zam Wessel went on to live happily ever after. No, wait, I now recall that they both went on to die in grisly manners. Semina says, What kind of story was that? I thought it was going to be about how the Helysion had survived a solar storm. And D3 is like, Oh, you are right. We did manage to avoid that one. But please don't be afraid. There is a chance we may survive this one. So I just thought that was quite a fun bit of dialogue. And you know, I'm a massive sucker for a sarcastic droid who says funny things. I think we all are who enjoy Star Wars because obviously 3PO and R2 are like the OG droid duo. And then you've also got people like Chopper who doesn't necessarily say anything but acts in a crazy way. And then you've got K2SO from the Rogue One series. And I'm sure he's going to pop up in Andor at some point. And I just love it. It's just a bit of fun. And I just really liked that bit of dialogue. So we kind of start to wrap up issue two of this where it's still in the present day and... Semina and Shaw are somewhat annoyed and they want to go and talk to either Lenka Mock or the captain and D3 says that they are indisposed. And it shows that the captain and Mock discuss a dangerous manoeuvre, flying through the solar storm just as the pirates are sort of attempting to dock to try and evade them. So we move on to issue number three. So in issue number three, the Helysian legacy, as the pirate ship is attempting to dock, manages to use all its thrusters and fly out of the way and heads towards the solar storm. The pirates then open fire and Keevan does manage to avoid all of the hits that went and one of the pirates on the ship does make a comment going, oh my god, that must be one of the best pilots in the galaxy. And then the next panel is this pirate on the floor with Crimson Jack kind of scowling at him and obviously he punched him basically in the face uh, for saying something like that. So Keevan then asks Lincoln Mock a little bit about the Resistance Spy, and while that happens, Shaw asks D3 for another story to try and further distract his granddaughter, Semina. 
So the flashback goes to when the Helician legacy was owned by the Huts. Now this is in the Clone Wars era, so it's around 22 to 19 years before the Battle of Yavin, and while D3 is going around, she notes that it is safer than being in the middle of a clone war, but it is crowded on the ship. And then you see a senator run past and knocks her over. You can see that the ship is now a much more unruly place, as you'd expect from huts ruling anything. Imagine Jabba's palace, but on a cruise ship. That's kind of what it's like. A hand then extends to help D3 up, and it shows that it is Padme Amadala. She helps her up, and then Anakin says that they should be undercover, not trying to help people, because helping someone in amidst the huts while undercover is the easiest and quickest way to get your cover blown. She just kind of dismisses him, and they wander off, because they're trying to follow this senator that knocked over D3, because... They seem to have some sort of information on the Republic or the Separatists, and they're going for a meeting with the Separatists, it seems. So they follow the Senator, who goes into their cabin, and Anakin notes that Obi-Wan, a group of clone troopers, are waiting at the Halysian's next stop at the next dock, so they can have a bit of breathing space. So Padme and Anakin go and have some fun. They go and do some sparring in a place with these double-ended padded staff things. I thought of, like, Gladiator, the TV show. Basically, just imagine a metal pole and a, or, that looks like a giant cotton bud, and at either end of this pole are, like, seemingly inflatable parts or big foamy bits, and you just hit each other with it, and you can kind of, you know, knock each other other down without actually causing any harm. So they have a little spar on things and Padme manages to swipe under Anakin's legs and he gets the floor and then he grabs her as he falls, pulls her down and they have a nice happy romantic laugh about it. Then they continue to wander around the ship and they see a little puffer pig. And I just mentioned the puffer pig because um, they're in two episodes of Star Wars Rebels. The first appearance is season one, episode 11, which is when Lando Calrissian is in Star Wars Rebels. So if that's not a reason to watch Rebels, apart from the fact it's arguably the best Star Wars content we've had since the original trilogy, I don't know what is. Uh, the episode is called Idiot's Array and there are puffer pigs in that. They're basically just pigs, but if you freak them out, they like puffer fish expand really big but if you imagine you know a puffer fish the size of a puffer fish is generally quite small a normal size pig is actually fairly large when that puffs up it becomes pretty massive like the size of a car i'd say but the puffer pig has no relevance to the plot they just walk past one and make a comment about it and i just i love any connection to rebels so i thought i'd say that but yeah padme and anakin they hold hands and they're quite enjoying the fact that they're trying to be undercover but they don't have to hide their love very much because no one there really knows them and then you see a ship dock with the Halcyon. Now, I will apologise here because I think, A, I keep swapping between Halcyon and Halcyon. It is Halcyon, H-A-L-C-Y-O-N. And also, the ship is not called the Halcyon Legacy. It's just called the Halcyon. Halcyon Legacy is the name of these comics. So I will apologise for that. The recording so far, I'm not going to go back and edit every single time I say Halcyon Legacy and Halcyon. So I will just put in here, apologies, it is called the Halcyon, not the Halcyon Legacy. That's the comic series. Anyway, so yeah, a ship does dock with the Halcyon and then Anakin senses a presence. So he immediately starts to run off somewhere and Padme follows and he breaks into the senator's cabin, the one they were speaking about earlier. They go to the cabin and it's empty aside from a gaping hole in the floor that seems to have been caused by lightsabers. It shows that the senator is being escorted away by a hooded figure. Anakin and Padme do manage to intercept this and the hooded figure is Asajj Ventress. So then what happens is Asajj Ventress and Anakin Skywalker then start fighting their lightsaber dueling. It's a really cool few panels of artwork and things. And while that's happening, Padme is with a young Shaw. So Shaw is there on the Halesion and Padme, as was you know referenced in the first issue, that little flashback page. And Padme is there trying to comfort him somewhat because he's just a young boy. He's around the same age as Samina is. And he's obviously worried. I mean, he thinks it's cool. There's lightsaber battling going on, but it's also quite scary with all that sort of going on with everything else. 
So Padme is trying to help Shaw, and as she's kind of evading what's going on in front of them, there's some security guards that try and grab them and things. Padme manages to shoot them and stun them, and then one of the huts enters. I couldn't confirm if it was specifically Jabba, it probably is, but a hut enters and tells everyone to stop. So everyone stops fighting and things, and then the hut threatens to reconsider the treaty that they have with the Republic and anyone else if this isn't all resolved. So Padme then speaks and negotiates with the huts and does flatter them quite a lot and says look why don't you not do that because of this and that the republic you know gives you this kind of thing so if you try and reconsider this treaty yeah you'll cancel this but we also won't give you access to these trade routes which will hugely affect your business blah 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 and the hut seems to somewhat calm down the senator, who was previously being escorted by Asajj Ventress, then offers information to the Huts. Says that, look, please save me. Get me out of this. I've got information on the Separatists and information on the Republic. Give it to me and save me and I'll give you all this information. And Asajj says, well, clearly your usefulness has ended here. And then just stabs him and kills him right in front of everyone. She then breaks a window and then bails and just escapes. And as she breaks the window, once again, a vacuum happens, just like it did with the Zetar in the first issue. And then Anakin and Padme have to try and save Shaw on the huts from being sucked out of the window. Anakin using the Force and Padme using her ingenuity and cleverness. And then they save them. Everyone's all happy. The huts say, thank you so much. We'll give you half off of a meal uh, for all of your hard work. And then it cuts back to now. And D3 says, once the huts had kind of calmed down a bit after that, they rescinded their offer for a discount for Padme and Anakin. So they didn't really get anything for it. But now, after D3 kind of recounted that story, Shaw decided that he needs to then be more brave because he recounts of how he was back then and how he didn't do what he could have done necessarily, even though he's just a kid, and is inspired by the actions of Padme and Anakin. So he wants to be braver. So he decides he needs to leave the ship so he can save everyone on it. So that's where issue three ends. So we move on to the penultimate issue, which is issue number four. So issue four starts with Shaw confirming that he is the Resistance spy. He recalls Padme being such an incredible individual and really saving the galaxy in a lot of ways, and also her daughter, Leia, saved the galaxy even more. So he's so inspired by these two people, that's why he became involved in the Resistance. And he decides that he must be as important to the galaxy as they are. You must sacrifice certain things, even though it's not a very easy thing to do. If you sacrifice it, it can really help the galaxy. So he gives this pendant that he has to Semina and then they have a bit of a heartfelt goodbye and then he leaves. He shows that Captain Keevan pulls the Helysion out of that storm and Crimson Jack is there waiting for her. So D3 decides to tell Semina a story from the Imperial Era. So this is around the time of A New Hope. I think it seems to be just after A New Hope because there's a mention about Alderaan which we'll get to very shortly. So yeah, around the time of A New Hope. But it starts off with Mars Kanata being there, who's one of my favourite characters. Now, Mars Kanata, you saw her in The Force Awakens. She is the short orange individual, and she has the cast on Takodana. She's also the oldest character in Star Wars canon that we know of thus far. In the flashback that we see in this issue, she's around 970 years old, and by the rise of Skywalker, she is over a thousand. She's about a thousand and seven years old. So she's on the Helysion being escorted by some stormtroopers. It's confirmed there's an Imperial officer on board who's one of the highest ranking officers on the ship and he likes to take things from planets that the Empire has invaded. You get to see part of his vault or safe and he's got a chest there made from a Wosher tree which is um, the trees of Kashyyyk where Wookiees are from. He's also got a Kalakori. Now a Kalakori is a wooden totem used by Twi'leks. So Twi'leks like Bib Fortuna or Hera Syndulla, you know very common species in Star Wars of two head tendrils, they 
have like clans and it's very important to their family and things and each generation adds something to the Kalakori. It's a small wooden totem that you can hold in your hand and there's a couple of arcs in Star Wars Rebels, I believe Series 3, specifically about Kalakori and Thrawn is involved as well. So it's a really, really good, another reason to go watch Star Wars Rebels. In addition to the Kalakori and the chest made from the Woshir tree, there's also four sages of Dwarty. Now, I hadn't really heard of these things, but I checked just out of curiosity online if they've been in anything else, and it turns out they've been in a lot. So you see them in the Clone Wars, you see them in Attack of the Clones, you can see them at Galaxy's Edge in Doc Ondar's Den of Antiquities, they're in the Clone Wars, they're in loads of pieces of Star Wars content. They're essentially four individuals who were very early beings of the republic of people of importance each of the sages there's like one who's wisdom and there's you know different ones that represent different things and the statues of them can actually be seen in palpatine's office in attack of the clones and that's when you i think see them in the clone wars as well so there are some very cool things in that safe or vault there might be some things i missed i don't know if if yourselves are reading this comic maybe take a look and tell me if you think i've missed anything but yeah in short this imperial keeps a lot of cool things in this safe so Mars Kanata wants to meet with this Imperial specifically to sell him some Alderaan crown jewels, which are obviously very, very valuable given the circumstance. So while she's speaking with him, in the lower decks, you've got Hondo Onaka as well as Lando Carizian gambling, because in the lower decks, that's where the stormtroopers and Imperials don't really seem to go. They have a few bets on card games and things, and then they decide to bet on who's going to get those jewels first. So Lando Calrissian, you should know about him. Fun fact, his middle name is Balthazar. His full name is Landonis Balthazar Calrissian. He's been in quite a few bits of content recently. He's been in Last Shot, which I tackled. It was on my Patreon, but I released it on this feed slash channel uh, a couple weeks ago. So that was by Daniel Jose Older. That was quite a fun book. And then I recently finished Shadows of the Sith, uh, which is a book with Lando Calrissian in it as well. And that is much closer to the time of The Rise of Skywalker. And I recently rewatched The Rise of Skywalker too. So you know about Lando Calrissian. Who doesn't? Behind Onaka, I mentioned him briefly in the earlier issues because he dated Aura Singh for a bit, but he is a character almost purely in animation. So he's introduced in the Clone Wars, he reappears in Star Wars Rebels, and you actually can see him in the flesh in Galaxy's Edge at Disney World. He's one of my favourite characters. He is a weak way, he is a pirate, but he's like a swindler, but he's kind of like, he's he's just morally very grey. He's in it for himself. He's not like a sadistic, horrible person who loves torturing, but he will kill people that get in his way, including children. Uh, So he's not a great guy, but he is very entertaining to watch. But then it cuts away from Hondo and Lando, and it shows that Imperial officer is informed that Hondo is on the ship. So this Imperial decides to put the jewels in the safe to make sure that no one else can get to them, because it's behind this massive, several inches thick, Durasteel wall. So Mars Kanata then leaves and makes a comment about cameras, and then this Imperial officer checks the cameras and sees that Hondo's face is right up to the camera inside his safe. So the Imperial officer is then panicking and demanding that the remaining Imperials open up the safe and they say well it takes three minutes for it to open again. After it's been opened and then closed, all the locking mechanisms and stuff, it takes three minutes I'm afraid. There's nothing we can do. This is is quite high security stuff that you wanted. Then they confirm that Hondo and Akka seems to be seen in the engineering section of the ship, which seems to be impossible because they're quite far away from each other. So some stormtroopers go to pursue Hondo, but he manages to evade them. 
It shows that he was in engineering and he's jumping over things and diving out the way of being shot and saying lots of quirks and things. One of them calls him a pirate and he keeps correcting them saying I'm a legitimate businessman, which he does that in Clone Wars and Rebels quite a lot, which is very entertaining. Eventually, one of the stormtroopers just charges at him. He catches him and they both fall off this edge and go into these highly electric... I think it's part of like the engine core or something like that. The stormtrooper's gone and Hondo seems to manage to grab onto something at the last minute and save himself. But the other stormtroopers saw that happen and saw the stormtrooper and Hondo fall, so they just stopped looking, thinking that Hondo's dead. This Imperial officer then opens up the safe to check on his belongings, and everything seems to be in order. So he demands that they start moving some of the things out of that safe into other places to be more secure. And it shows that Lando is actually in disguise as an Imperial officer who is there. Lando manages to KO both this Imperial officer and some of the stormtroopers nearby, and then is free to take whatever they want. So they manage to get some goods back to Maz Kanata. She pays Hondo and Lando for their trouble. And then all of the treasure they collected in the Woshir tree chest. She just pulls all of it out and says, doesn't care about any of that. She cares about the box itself. Because it was given to her by a very special friend. And you get a little flashback where you just get to see a Wookiee hand giving her a box. Now, the box that she is given, as I said, it's made out of wood from the Woshir tree. But the box itself is called a Curio Box. And you actually saw it in The Force Awakens. It's the box that houses Luke Skywalker slash Anakin Skywalker slash Rey Skywalker's lightsaber. So in The Force Awakens, when Rey opens the box or the chest and grabs onto the lightsaber, that's her Curio Box. And it's made out of trees from Kashyyyk, which is very sweet and as well as the lightsaber inside of this chest there's also something called a hyperspace sextant which is a 400 year old instrument used for going around hyperspace and things i don't know much else about it but i looked online and it said that something in legends was called the astrogation plotter so if you're a legends fan you know what an astrogation plotter is that's basically what a hyperspace sextant is and so yeah that and luke slash anakin skywalker's lightsaber was kept by mars Kanata in a box slash chest made from the trees of Kashyyyk. So that was a nice little story that might be my favourite flashback of them. Um, I just love Lando, Hondo and Mars, so more of any of them makes me happy. And so we go to present day, and as this comic comes to a close, you've got Crimson Jack gets aboard the Halcyon and goes to speak to the captain. But as he does so, you see an escape pod leaving the Halcyon, and it shows that Shaw is on board. He has left the Halcyon to try and save everyone and try and get the pirates to follow him. So that means we move on to the final issue, issue number five. So issue five starts with Shaw is in this escape pod and he starts broadcasting to the Halcyon, confirming that he's the spy, he's got what they need, and telling the pirates to just leave the ship and come get him. While Crimson Jack is distracted by this, one of the crew members on the Halcyon tries to shoot Crimson Jack, but misses quite a few times, and then Jack just grabs this person and throws them across the bridge and he heads to go after the spy, leaving his remaining pirates to guard the ship. Samina and Shaw seem to be able to then speak to each other using the Force. They basically just say they love each other and they care about each other and things, but they're not in the same place, so I assume that both of them are somewhat Force-sensitive. The remaining pirates then start to get a little bit violent and things. They start like yelling at some of the passengers of the Halcyon, and D3 tries to tell them to kind of calm down. One of them hits D3, and as she falls to the ground, she is then helped up by a woman who is a... Balasaur. Now this Balasaur woman is called Artes. And then a story is recounted about Artes. So as I said, Artes is a Balasaur. Now a Balasaur is 
a humanoid species. Once again, they look just like people, but they have got two antenna palps coming out of their head. They kind of look like Shrek's ears. So if you imagine Shrek's ears, but they're coming out of sort of the corners of your forehead and there's one on either side, that's what one looks like. And you have actually seen a species of this because one of my favorite characters, I keep saying that because I have a lot of favorite characters, but this is a very minor fun favorite character who you would have seen in Attack of the Clones. So when Obi-Wan and Anakin are pursuing Zam Wessel in the Coruscant bar, Obi-Wan goes up to the counter and then some guy goes up to him and says, hey, do you want to buy any Death Six? And Obi-Wan's like, no, I don't want to buy any Death Six. And he's like, no, you don't want to buy any Death Six. And Obi-Wan says, you want to go home and rethink your life. And this guy who then repeats that back to him is someone called Elan Sleazebagano. Obviously, sleazebag. Uh, I think George Lucas really didn't like smoking cigarettes. That's why he called them death sticks, even though death sticks in Star Wars are more so aligned with what I think is like halfway between opium and cannabis. Not overly sure. Not going to delve into drugs on a podcast about Star Wars, but that's what death sticks are vaguely. And that is the character Elan Sleazebagano. So in this flashback, it seems to take place around five to ten years after the Battle of Yavin. So it seems to be about five years after Return of the Jedi. Artes is on the Halcyon with her partner called Stolokon. The Halcyon is heading towards something called the Sun Grazer Comet Hit a Star, which is a once in a lifetime opportunity and is apparently meant to be very beautiful. There is a hollow there of Leia Organa and she is saying for ex-Imperials to join the New Republic. There is a mention about Leia and essentially saying that she was there a few years before and that's in that book The Princess and the Scoundrel I mentioned earlier on in this episode. So Artes then starts to cough, so Stolak goes to get her a drink. She knows that he's not going the same way as where the bar is, and then you see a Trandoshan sneaking around the Halcyon trying to maybe look for someone, and it's confirmed this Trandoshan is none other than Bosk. Bosk is the bounty hunter that you see in Empire Strikes Back. He's also in the Bounty Hunters comics and things. He's quite brutal, and he's a Trandoshan, which is, you know, a somewhat of a lizard person in a very derogatory way of speaking about them if they are real people. So Bosk is in this hidden room somewhere and Stolak goes to meet him and then they have a big fight. Funnily enough, Stolak seems to actually beat Bosk, which very much surprised me when I was reading this, but Stolak knocks out Bosk or at least incapacitates him very briefly and ties him up and then returns back to Artes. It does a little flashback to modern day again and shows that pirates are starting to take things from passengers, including money and jewelry and that sort of thing, and then back to the story. So it's confirmed in this flashback story that Artes's partner Stomach borrowed a lot of money from some not so good people for some medication for Artes and to get them off the planet that they were on because it was so heavily polluted and things, it was making her illness worse. So he's in a lot of debt. And then four LOM attacks, the droid companion of Zuckus, who if you've been following along in the Bounty Hunters comics, I've given a lot of information on Forlom and on Zuckus. In fact, in the episode released last week, episode 104, which featured Crimson Rain number two, I delve into it a bit more there. So if you want to find out more about four LOM slash Forlom and Zuckus and other Bounty Hunters, pick up those Bounty Hunter comics by Ethan Sachs or listen to all of my episodes on Bounty Hunters. So along with Fort LOM, you've also got Zuckus there, and then you've also got an aqualist called Wuro, and also a human female called Tonga. And Tonga is a central character of the Bounty Hunters comics as well, and her partner Losha is there as well as they come to each other. And it's confirmed that they basically want to capture Stomac to take him to Black Sun, who is who he owes the money to. Stomac says that he's only there to try and help his partner, which is Artes, and begs them if they can just leave them for a little while. They confirm that, yeah, they'll let them, so they allow Stomac and Artes to watch the comet hit the star, and it's all very beautiful, and then they take Stomac away. 
Artes then recounts the fact that, although she never saw Stomach ever again, he managed to pay for her room for an entire century, so for a hundred years, and although she's never seen him again, she basically lives on the Halcyon, and her illness has completely gone away, being away from all that pollution and things. And she notes that that experience made her stronger as an individual, and then it shows in modern day, because of this strength that she got from there, she pulls out a blaster and then just takes down the pirates that are causing everyone a lot of havoc. It then shows that Captain Keevan and Lenka Mok attack the pirates that are on the bridge as well, and then all of these pirates that are on the ship get locked in the brig. And when Lenka questions why there's a brig on a pleasure cruiser, Keevan mentions that it's because when the Imperials owned it, they need to have a brig on board. So Crimson Jack then captures Shaw and communicates to the First Order and says, look, I've got the Resistance spy. And they're like, well, do you have those codes of his that should be there? And Jack opens up a box that he's been holding. And in there is just a small model figurine of the Halcyon. Shaw confirms that that was meant to be a gift for his granddaughter and that he doesn't have the codes. The First Order are understandably furious at Crimson Jack, just so they'll go do it themselves, and then it shows that Semina manages to escape. She lands on a planet and speaks to someone called Vi Moradi. Now, Vi Moradi is a member of the Resistance. She was first introduced in the book Phasma by Delia Dawson, and then she also appears in the Galaxy's Edge Black Spire Outpost book, but if you go to Galaxy's Edge, you will meet Vi. And so she's a character who is very important to the resistance in that realm and also to galaxy's edge which is on the planet or in the system of batu so yeah samina meets her and then seems to stay on the halcyon for the foreseeable future and that my friends is where this comic mini series ends I hope you enjoyed this. I'd be interested to know if reading these comics has convinced anyone to spend the largest sum of money is to go to the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. If it did, please let me know and I'll tell Disney and then hopefully they can give me some commission. Um, But, you know, it's a really fun anthology. I am hoping that we get less miniseries that are anthologies in Star Wars because it's just anthologies. They are fun, but obviously the plot can only go so far in the space of like, you know, the average comic is 19 to 22 pages. A bigger one is often 32 pages. But if you've got a framed main story going on as well, you immediately lose like four to six pages, maybe even eight from there from the get go. So then you've only really got like 10 to 15 pages to really tell a story, uh, which is fine. But I really like stories that there's a lot of depth to. Obviously, especially ongoing series have a lot of that. But um, yeah, I really did enjoy those. There was a lot of fun connections I really did enjoy, especially to the Bounty Hunters comic. So it makes me feel rewarded as a Star Wars comic consumer. But what have we got coming up? Well, next week is an incredibly busy week for me. So I'm going to try and record a book review for Shadow of the Sith. It's not going to be as detailed as my High Republic book reviews. It's going to be much like the ones I released on Patreon and not dissimilar from the Daniel Jose Older's book Last Shot, the one I released a few weeks ago. Basically, I just press record before I drive my car, normally on the drive back from home, and then I just speak while I'm driving home, and then afterwards in post-production I try and cut out some of the background noise and etc. So I will pre-warn that if I do that, it won't be in as high quality as this, because obviously this is my nice microphone in my office, whereas, you know, a phone in a moving car, not the same quality. But I'm hoping to get that recorded and get that done. If not, I may just have to pull something else from my Patreon to release next week just because, yeah, I'm off work for a week. We've got some American friends staying with us for four days and I'm not going to spend the time podcasting when I could be seeing them. And then on that weekend, the days I normally release podcasts, I'm actually at a stag do as well in Brighton. So uh, follow me on social media uh, at Genuine Chit Chat, mainly on Instagram. You should be able to see some images of that. I imagine it'll be a lot of fun. But yeah, next week is likely just going to be either something 
Patreon or my Shadow of the Sith review. I haven't really decided what yet, it just depends how busy I am. But then the week after that, I'll be back to normal. So I may end up doing the Crimson Rain next batch, which will be the third volume. Or I may end up doing the first volume of the Han Solo and Chewbacca comics. So there are going to be 10 comics in total. And the first story arc ends with issue five, which I got delivered to me very recently. So I may end up doing the Han Solo and Chewbacca comics, but also the Obi-Wan Kenobi comics. The fifth issue of that, I think, gets delivered to me in about a month. So over the coming weeks, I'll be doing Crimson Rain, Han Solo and Chewbacca, a book review of Shadow of the Sith at some point, hopefully the book review of Midnight Horizon, and then also the Obi-Wan Kenobi miniseries. In addition to that, there's also the IDW publishing comics, so there's the Ghosts of Vader's Castle, as well as the Clone Wars Battle Tales, and also I recently purchased the Guardians of the Wills manga adaptation. So Guardians of the Wills is a book, it's a prequel to Rogue One, and it's set around Chirrut Imwe and Baz Malbus. So they are the blind monk and the not blind monk with like a chain gun sort of thing, two of the best characters in Rogue One, and it's a story of theirs before the events of Rogue One. I hadn't read the book, I believe it was by Greg Rooker, I hadn't read it, but when they did a manga adaptation that I saw recently, and I really enjoyed the Edge of Balance mangas, which I tackled in the show a few weeks back, they're set in the High Republic, I thought oh, it'd be worth picking up this book, giving it a read, and then I can release it on comics in canon. I don't know if I'm going to do it like I did with Edge of Balance, I don't know if I'm going to do it more like a book review, I haven't really figured it out yet. Uh, it's quite chunky, so I don't know if I need to do it in two parts. What I'm going to do but you know I'll figure it out but those are going to be the things I kind of do over the next few weeks as well as my other usual stuff um, but yeah let me know what you think of those things then what else have I been involved with? Well, since last recording, uh, there's two episodes I've been in have re- released. So one episode is Mary Antoinette for Femme on Film. So Rhea Carrigan's show, which airs on the feed of Comics in Motion. So if you're listening on a podcast app, you should be able to see it on this very feed. So myself and my girlfriend Megan spoke with Rhea about the film Mary Antoinette by Sophie Coppola. We hadn't seen the film before, so it was a fun discussion on that. A link to that will be in the description. But in addition to that, I was also on Back to the Filmography. So I was on the episode regarding Collateral featuring Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. I was on that show also with Megan, but with the gracious host Jack. So there's two more links in the description, which will be for the episodes I've done with Jack and with Rhea, in addition to the recent collaboration I did with Spider-Dan The Secret Boars, where I went on his show, and where I spoke about Absolute Carnage, Maximum Carnage, and also the film Venom Let There Be Carnage. So quite a few guest spots, and I've got a few more lined up. In addition to that... Please consider checking out my Patreon, patreon.com slash genuine chit chat. For as little as £1 a month, you get access to hours and hours of additional content. A lot of it is myself and Megan doing TV show reviews or movie reviews, things like that. We've also reviewed musicals, such as the Great British Bake Off musical that came out recently, Les Miserables, uh, Book of Mormon. We watch movies at the cinema. We sometimes watch older movies. We're doing a Tom Hanks watch, so watching like as many Tom Hanks films in the filmography as possible. We start with Big, and I've done the vast majority of them since. We recently did Forrest Gump. So I think we've got Apollo 13 and Toy Story next. In addition to that, there's also some Star Wars book reviews that I release on there that don't get released elsewhere. There's a couple of Legends ones. I've done Shatterpoint, the first two Darth Bane books, and Darth Plagueis. Darth Bane 3 is going to be sorted soon as well. And also I've done some canon books like A New Dawn, which is a prequel to Star Wars Rebels. Last Shot, which I released on this main feed a couple weeks ago, and also Dark Disciple, which is a Clone Wars era novel about Asajj Ventress and Quinlan Voss. So if you want to get additional content, there's hours and hours of it. I think at the moment there's about 105 episodes of Afterthoughts. You get access to an audio-exclusive feed, which has Afterthoughts, early episodes of Genuine Chit Chat on there, and book reviews and lots of other bits and pieces. You get to support the show, and there's other bonus content that I release on Patreon as well. So 
please consider checking that out. If you are on the fence, go down in the description. There is a link to mine and Megan's free Patreon episode on Tom Hanks, the first movie we watched, which was big. So to start off the Tom Hanks rewatch. But aside from that, my friends, please rate, review, subscribe, share on social media, tell your friends about the show. If you're listening on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button and the like button. And if you're listening on a podcast app, please go over to either Good Pods or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give a rating, give a review, and tell your friends about this show and the other amazing shows on the feed of Comics in Motion. But that's going to be enough for me, my friends. As I said earlier, please follow me at Genuine Chit Chat on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. I will speak to yourselves next week, either with another book review of Shadow of the Sith or another book review I've released on my patreon and then after that we'll continue with more comics and things and as always may the force be with you you can hold it in your hand the intro for star wars comics and canon is arranged by myself mike burton and the backing music was made by eric matias of soundimage.org you have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit-chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.